This is Shine On, the health and happiness show with Casey, an Ella's Leash production. Shine On is a weekly presentation with guests, ideas, information, and fun designed to improve your life from 100.7 WHUD. Consciousness is next to godliness. Ptolemy Tompkins talks about his new book, Proof of God, today. Consciousness is the single most overlooked aspect of our reality. The fact that you and I are conscious is a miracle beyond all imagining, and it's one that science cannot remotely get its finger on. And the brilliant Dan Pink is back with his new book. It's called When. Don't schedule surgery in the afternoon. Because if you look at the data on what happens in the afternoon in hospitals, it's enough to scare you. Hi, it's Casey. Thanks for shining on today. Before we get to our own godliness and when to do what this week, we're going to look at our state of consciousness and the alcohol you drink. Wanna? On my Facebook stream, drinking wine has been elevated to an art form. There are so many, mostly women, posting about their joyful consumption that it's really hard to believe. The big thing this week was this um, bracelet you can buy, and it's called the booze bangle. You fill up the bracelet with whatever you're drinking. Okay. If you drink a lot, you are not alone. Could you find more peace and health without drinking? Annie Gray says yes in her book, The Naked Mind. You will not be bored or boring with your wits about you. And you're going to be surprised why you have to have that second glass of wine. Annie Grace, your mind is naked now. But was there ever a time when people told you you drank too much? Not too much. I certainly felt hungover more than I wanted to be. But I think mentally and emotionally, it would take you It wasn't somewhere I wanted to be or expected to be. And so when I realized I could just see the volume of alcohol that I was drinking and I just wasn't emotionally happy with it. Yet when I tried to quit or cut back, I could do it. I just felt very deprived and upset and like I was missing out. Did someone ever say to you, you're drinking too much? No, not really. And it was interesting because when I stopped drinking on the flip side, people actually said, wow, you know, I drink with you and I don't feel like I drink too much. So it wasn't really that. It was very much a personal thing of just not feeling great, not feeling as happy with my relationship with alcohol as I used to. So you tried to quit and what would happen? I could do it, but I would five o'clock would come and I'd be grumpy. I feel deprived. I felt like I had a hard day. I deserved it. I needed to relax. And my favorite relaxation tool, I wasn't letting myself have. So it was kind of like being on a quite miserable alcohol diet all the time that used a lot of willpower. What turned this around for you? I really remembered that there was a point in my life that I didn't feel like I needed alcohol to relax or have a good time. And I said, what was different about then than now? What's changed? And so I started just going through every reason I gave for drinking and really examining it and saying, is this actually true? And doing the research, looking into the studies to decide if it was actually true scientifically and neurologically. And that changed everything because it was able to let go of me these beliefs that weren't actually founded in reality. Yeah. So alcohol really doesn't relax you? Yeah, so for 30 minutes after your first drink, you feel great feelings of euphoria and relaxation. Your blood alcohol level is going up for about 30 minutes. But then what happens is your blood alcohol starts going down. And for two to three hours for that same drink, you feel feelings of restlessness, unease. Your body releases adrenaline and cortisol, which are stress hormones. And so that very same drink has about 30 minutes of a relaxation feeling and two to three hours of feeling uncomfortable. The thing is most people drink another drink to combat that feeling and then deal with the kind of blood alcohol falling when they're asleep. 
So we wake up the next day not feeling it's great. We don't make the connection to maybe it was the alcohol I was drinking. We think I need more alcohol to feel better. And kind of therein lies the cycle. Annie Grace, This Naked Mind is the book. I need you to just repeat that again. (laughs) So the first drink makes you feel good for a half an hour, but then even if you don't have another drink, then you don't feel good for two hours? Yeah, so if you, your blood alcohol rises, and alcohol is both kind of a stimulant and a depressant, and that's why. So your blood alcohol rising has these feelings of euphoria, but when it's dropping, your body releases cortisol and adrenaline. You feel slightly more depressed, restless, anxious, and that's why people very easily will want the second and the third drink, because you have this withdrawal that's coming as the alcohol leaves your system, and the withdrawal is replaced and relieved by another drink. You know, it's so funny because I was uh, traveling a couple of weeks ago and I said to the person on the plane, because, you know, when the flight attendant comes by, some people ask for two drinks. Yeah. So the people next to me ask for like double this and double that, a husband and a wife. And I said, you know, I'm going to ask them for two glasses of wine. You've inspired me. I said to the woman next to me, you know, I don't really want the first glass. It's the second glass I want. And I didn't even know what I meant when I said it. But I think what you're saying is is exactly that. Fascinating. It's the second glass that feels better because it's scratching the itch the first glass created. Son of a gun. Son of a gun. You know, uh, I'm sure you've noticed on Facebook, wine is glorified to angelic realms. There are so many memes about drinking wine and having wine and let's have wine. It's become like a, um, a celebrated pastime. Have you noticed that? Oh, absolutely. And, and it's funny on one hand, but I saw one recently and it was like mom's happy hour is a bottle of wine and a Xanax. And, you know, unconsciously, that actually tells us that we can't be successful parents or good at our jobs or whatever the case is without it. So it really kind of erodes at your personal confidence over time, which is one of the underbelly, I guess, of all the jokes. Right, right. Yeah, the underbelly of the jokes is not a healthy one or an empowering one. So you did this without 12 steps or any sort of... uh group intervention maneuver? Yeah, I didn't feel that that fit me or suited me. I didn't feel like I had time to go to meetings, and I didn't feel that I needed that much help. I couldn't really relate. I just felt like I wanted to get my thinking straight about this, and that's really the difference between kind of my book and a 12-step program, which you rebuild your entire life sort of from the ground up. My book doesn't do that. My book is really just about, okay, let's get the thinking straight. Let's get the beliefs, examine the belief patterns, and, and that's all I felt I needed. All right. What do you do now? to relax and unwind? Um, tea exercise is huge because that actually works. <laughs> and when I was drinking, I would always trade a glass of wine for putting on my running shoes because it was easier. It was kind of just a switch. But, you know, over time, exercise makes you just a much more relaxed person. I started a kind of abbreviated form of mindfulness because I have three young children, so you only get a few minutes here or there. But that's a huge help. All right, there's people listening now. They're shaking their head. They're thinking, maybe I can try this naked mind routine. Were you scared when you started out? Absolutely. And I think one of the things about it is that we imagine that we're alone in questioning our drinking. We think, oh, we must be the only one. But the truth is that if you feel like you're maybe drinking a little too much, so do all your friends who are drinking with you. We just don't talk about it in our society. It's become so scary. And so just knowing you're not alone, I think, is is really a big empowering thing. You know, my girlfriend actually joined AA and then, you know, was in it for a couple of years and then felt terrible about dropping out. But it wasn't that that she needed. You know, she didn't need to rebuild her whole life. She needed this. She needed this naked mind. 
Absolutely. How is your mind today? How does nudity feel? <laughs> it feels great. I have so much more energy, and honestly, one of the most empowering things is realizing that my friends are actually funny. It's not the alcohol, and concerts are actually really enjoyable. It's not the alcohol. <laughs> All of these things that I thought, oh, it must be the alcohol. Why is it this fun? And it was because I believed I was going to be miserable if I didn't have a drink. I was. So things like a concert were miserable if I was a designated driver. But now being able to go and experience things and realize it's just innate. It's in me to have a good time. We're created to have a good time. It's not the booze. It's, it's really awesome. Ah, well said. Well said. Is there an, uh, a website we can go for more information? ThisNakedMind.com thisnakedmind.com All right, Annie Grace, what are you going to do with your life now? Uh, I think I'm going to write more books. I started with a one a woman is struggling with marijuana, and so she's reached out. She stopped drinking with this naked mind, and, and she's talking to me about maybe putting that together in a new approach to marijuana. So that might be next. Annie Grace, she wrote the book The Naked Mind. I'm not sharing my copy yet. I'm still reading it. I've been naked-minded for the past couple of weeks now. Thenakedmind.com has more. And I have Weight Watchers points to spare. When is the best time to do anything? Dan Pink knows next. Sensory sensitivity, repetitious behavior, lack of eye contact. You can see signs of autism in children as young as 18 months. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Hi, it's Casey. Getting ready for the Shine On Weekend Retreat at Mariondale and Ossining, March 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. We're going to try some laughter yoga, create a handy list of trigger situations, those tricky spots where we need to keep our cool, and we're going to create peace with 100 breaths morning, noon, and night. Mariondale will also offer Reiki and massage and spa services, healing touch too. So join us. Get details at casey.co, K-A-C-E-Y.co. Now we welcome back the brilliant Dan Pink, author of Drive and To Sell is Human. Dan's new book, When, will help you decide when to do things. Dan, you wrote this book because... Because uh, I was making all kinds of timing decisions myself, all kinds of when decisions myself. When should I do certain kinds of work in the day? When should I exercise during the day? When should I start a project? When should I abandon a project? And what I found was that I was making these decisions in a pretty haphazard way, and I wanted to make them in a better way. And it turns out there's this pretty large body of research out there that allow us to make systematically better decisions about when we do stuff. And who did this research? Oh my gosh. Uh, there's so much research out there, Casey. It's uh, For this book, uh, I actually had to bring in a couple of research assistants. We went through about 700 studies all over the place. So it's economists, social psychologists, uh, endocrinologists, anesthesiologists, chronobiologists. It's all over the place. Uh, and what's interesting is that even though they're in very different domains, they're asking some fairly similar questions. Um, how does time of day affect us? How, does, how do beginnings affect us? How do midpoints affect us? And if you, if you take the time to go through this research, you, we, can, we can begin to make systematically better decisions about evidence-based decisions about when to do things. Okay. I should never have surgery in the afternoon? Nope. Why? Because if you look at the data on what happens in the afternoon in hospitals, it's enough to scare you. Case in point anesthesia errors, four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m., hand washing in hospitals, dramatic deterioration in the afternoons, uh, colonoscopies, endoscopists find half as many polyps in afternoon exams versus morning exams. 
uh, uh, even routine phys- uh, physician appointments, doctors, far more likely to prescribe unnecessary antibiotics in afternoon exams versus morning exams. So um, there's something about this afternoon trough that really uh, diminishes our performance, and in some cases, it's a life and death issue. That's amazing. We just should not let them work afternoon. That's it. Come in early. Well, you know, there's another there's another remedy, which is is to give uh, physicians, nurses, hospital professionals, because we can't just like say, oh, no one gets to go to the hospital in the afternoon, mm-hmm. um, is is being much more deliberate and intentional about breaks. So, for instance. In the hand-washing research, one of the best remedies for, for that was giving nurses uh, more breaks, and especially social breaks. Giving nurses a few more breaks, allow them to restore, their hand-washing goes back up. All right, you're my boss. I'm coming to you for a job performance review. What are you going to give me first, the good news or the bad news? Oh, wow. I am totally, Casey, going to give you the bad news first. Mm-hmm. What do you want to hear first? I want to the hear the bad news first. Yeah, absolutely. That's the key here. Most people want to hear the bad news first. Unfortunately, most news givers give the good news first, which is a mistake. Uh, And the reason that we want the bad news first is that, in general, human beings prefer endings that elevate. We prefer rising sequences to declining sequences. And this is one piece of research that has absolutely changed the way I do things. So I used to always give the good news first because... You know, wanted to ease into it, wanted to lay down a cushion before delivering the hammer blow. And that's just not right. I'm now the king of giving the bad news first. Great. And, you know, then you get it out, then you move on. I like it. Okay. Exactly. We should, I've heard for my whole life, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And you say... My, I give you a definitive maybe to that claim. Um, the research isn't totally clear um, on that. A lot of the research on the importance of breakfast is, is a little bit sketchy. Uh, some of it's been uh, funded by cereal companies. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's, you shouldn't have breakfast at all. It just means that all the things we've been hearing, really not that supported by the science. What is supported by the science is lunch. Uh, we should be taking uh, lunches away from our desk. The restorative benefits of that, according to some really interesting new research, uh, coming, some of it coming out of South Korea, some of it coming out of Scandinavia, uh, shows that lunch is actually, breakfast basically is less important than we think. Lunch is more important than we think. Very good. We're talking to Daniel H. Pink, the book When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. I'm asking you, Mr. New York Times bestseller, how has this changed your life? Well, as I said, I mean, I definitely delivered the bad news. Uh, I definitely delivered bad news first. Um, in, in terms of like the pattern of the day, we know that they're better. To, that you know, we tend to move through the day in a peak, a trough, and a recovery, uh, with peak usually in the morning. So I have really been deliberate about how I schedule my own work. And so this book, um, since I'm typically better at analytic work during the peak, which for me is the morning, uh, I, I probably wrote 90% of the words in this book in the morning before noon. Got it. Um, and then I do my other stuff later in the day. Like I like, I like doing interviews uh, later in the day, interviews where I'm the interviewer, which is more common, uh, later in the day because uh, in the recovery period, you're a little bit more loose, you're a little bit more freewheeling. Seems to me he is always at his best. Dan Pink, the book is When. And if you'd like to win a copy, send an email from the website, casey.co. Leave your address, too. Are you ready to embrace your inner godliness? Ptolemy Tompkins, former editor at Guideposts in Carmel, New York, and a former Nyack, New York resident, now calls Maine home. Ptolemy's father wrote the epic book, The Secret Life of Plants. Very interesting man. Apple? Tree is the case here, as Ptolemy has teamed up with an astrophysicist to give us the book Proof of God. 
How did this come to be? The book started off just as I was splitting up with my wife, and I spent a month in the Time Hotel in Nyack, sort of trying to figure out what to do with my life now that my marriage had broken up. And so um, I'm always somebody, writers try to use what they have at hand. So I used the despair of my marriage breakup as a kind of framing device for the book, which turned out to work pretty well because, you know, when a marriage breaks up, the story of your life breaks up and it seems like there's no story anymore. It's all just generally pointless. And seeing as the book was about demonstrating the existence of God, I thought that worked in perfectly because, you know, the theoretical physicist Steven Weinberg has a famous quote, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it also seems pointless. And the whole gist of proof of God is to argue against that against that point, using as backup my co-author, uh, Bernie Heisch, who's an astrophysicist. Um, I wouldn't do much of a job proving God myself, but Bernie's sort of the battery I use in making my point, because he actually knows what he's talking about. Gotcha. So... All right. combine those two elements. Let me ask you this. We just need to check. How's your heart? How's your relationship? Are you guys friends now? Um, I'm good. You're I'm good. good. All right. Yeah. I'm good. I'm good. You're good. Good enough for a 10-minute interview. Yeah. Good enough. <laughs> and now we got to get right to the meat and potatoes of it. So tell me, is there a God? Absolutely. And uh, the Weinberg quote is interesting because although I am not a theoretical physicist, Bernie helped show me how, in fact, just the opposite is the case. The more we learn about the universe, the more it has an absolute point to it. And Bernie brought me into all sorts of uh, arcane stuff, which I tried to make, you know, more or less comprehensible to a regular person like myself. One of them, just to pull one out of the air, is the uh, gravitational constant. If, If you're sort of arguing that universe just sort of happened to arise randomly 14 some billion years ago well in the big bang certain things were set um if you pick up a pencil on your desk and drop it it will hit the table at a particular speed and with a particular force and we just take that for granted that's gravity well gravity could have actually been set at any old point whatsoever. It could have been set so that if you dropped your pencil, it floated slowly to the ground or, for that matter, drifted off into the air. It's completely arbitrary. It could have been set any old way, but it was set so precisely that it allowed for the universe to form after the Big Bang. If gravity had been a little weaker, the universe would have just blasted off. There would have been no time for stars to form, no time for planets to form around stars, no time for life to develop on our planet, none of that. It would have just blasted off into nothing. If gravity had been a little stronger, everything would have just popped back in and the Big Bang would have been a big blip and it would have just been over in a nanosecond. But it was set precisely. And how precisely was it set? So precisely that we can't even conceive of it. My favorite example, this comes from uh, Lee Strobel's case for a creator actually is, you know, you're a radio person, so remember those old-fashioned dials you had on yes. your, uh, and you, you tuned a little orange stick to get a station just right. Right. And you had to get it just right or you wouldn't get a clear signal. Well, imagine a radio dial as wide as the universe. Right. And imagine that you had to get one station just right on that radio dial. 
And if you turned it one millimeter to the left or one millimeter to the right, you wouldn't get that station. Well, that station is the gravitational constant. That's how precisely gravity has been set. Okay. Now, right. So let me just... just weird, let me, right? uh, yes, it is. But let me just ask you this. How do we not know that over the course of, of time that this Big Bang didn't happen a bazillion other times and hit every other position on the dial and then finally got it and, and the gravity was set just right? How do we know it just wasn't random? Well... You are citing one of the prime theories against the argument I just made, and that is the multiverse theory. And that's the notion that there are, are an infinite amount of universes, and we just happen to be in the universe where everything turned out just right in order for us to arrive. If the gravitational pull was set, who set it? Well, I don't know. Somebody. If you've got a computer program, well, there's usually a programmer. If you find a watch on the beach, well, somebody must have made the watch. And the universe is one hell of a nicely made watch. Do you think it's a one supreme being? Do you think it's a family of supreme beings? Do you think... What, what do you think? No, I'm not going to go all ancient Greek and think it was a family of beings. Although the ancient Greeks also posited one central creator most of the... Uh, ancient traditions did. No, I would I would say that it was one instead of a, a sort of a committee working all the dials. Who made that person? Um, that's a theological question, and because God lies outside the realm of relatives such as who created what, um, God is by definition beyond all of that, we can't really answer that question. It's taking place within the thought structures that we as uh, created thinking beings have to function in, but God lies outside of that. Okay, what's our relationship to this God? Should Are we supposed to have one? Are we supposed to be engaging? Yes, that's, that's the funny thing about God. He is inconceivably far away, but he is also, to quote a pretty well-known book called The Bible, uh, closer to us than our jugular veins. And to put this in, in the language of science rather than that of the Bible, we are close to God primarily by nature of the fact that we are conscious beings. Consciousness is the single most overlooked aspect of our reality. The fact that you and I are conscious is a miracle beyond all imagining, and it's one that science cannot remotely get its finger on. There is no explanation for consciousness, although there are a lot of attempts at it. If you read the New York Times science section, they're always talking about how the brain produces consciousness. But consciousness, as Bernie really demonstrated to me, is primary. Um, consciousness didn't arise with life. Consciousness is the basis the universe. It's the one reality that there is. The physical world around us is not real. That's another point in the book that I found fascinating. Uh, Bernie demonstrated to me that the entire physical world around us, although it seems very solid, is not solid at all. In fact, it's just a swirling mass of energy. There is no such thing as solid matter. The universe is it can be compared to a, a virtual reality computer program. On a very fundamental scientific basis, it's not real. Right. We're, move, we're all moving atoms. Even the chair I'm sitting no. on is moving. Well, it, 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 it's moving at, at a rate we can't even conceive of. It is a swirling mass of energy. You can bang it. You can bang your coffee cup against it. But it ain't there. It ain't solid. It is just a mock-up. 
there is no such thing as solid matter. I find this fact fascinating. I mean, you can just think on it endlessly. Yeah, I do. It's so hard Audrey. to get into our heads. Yeah, no, I you do. do. I, right. I think about that one a lot. I really do. I, I, can, I can grasp that one. Um, so yeah. consciousness is next to godliness? Uh, that's pretty good. Consciousness, you could almost say, is godliness. It is our primary connection to God. Any conscious being is by nature participating in God. They have God, this is a rough way to express it, but if we're conscious, we have God inside us. God is an effect. The eye, as Meister Eckhart said, the eye that we see with is, is God seeing through that eye. That's a bad paraphrase. But anyhow, right, right, God right. is looking right out through our eyes right now, each and every one of us. So... What's the point? We're here. God made us. We have gravity. We have universe. What's the point? What am I supposed to be doing here? Well, you hit the nail on the head with the word point. We live in a world where people struggle with the apparent pointlessness of life. Like, nothing means anything. It's all going nowhere. We're going to die. And the whole nature of our universe points to the notion that we are involved in this massive story. And we are the heroes of the story, actually. At every point in our lives, even the most dull 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon, and I know how overcast and can get Nyack on a Sunday afternoon, we are engaged in a fantastic story. And if we were just aware of that fact, our life would suddenly reveal itself as what it is, and that is a story where the apparent pointlessness of the world is the challenge that we have to meet. That's sort of the football that God has thrown us. We have to catch it. We have to realize that we are the absolute spearheads, the very point of the evolving universe, and the universe is going somewhere. It's not going toward heat, death, and entropy. It's going toward a state we can't even imagine, and we are the heroes of that story. I think I, I know, perk I think, you up on a Sunday, more, on a Sunday afternoon. I think I know where we're going. Can I throw it at you? I think think we are going to evolve to a place as humans where we can recognize our own godliness. That's where I think, that's what I think the point is. Bingo, bingo. See, I don't have to do any work here. You're doing it all for me. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. All right. But I would add we can do that now. I mean, if we just pay attention, we can do it now. Yes. Very good. All right. How do you do it? How do you incorporate this concept of, uh, you know that there's a God, you have proof that there's a God, how does it work or manifest in your life? Well, I'm working on having it manifest more, you know, I ain't the Dalai Lama, but I, I think the first step is, and that, I'm basically on that first step, is waking up every day and remembering that the view of the world that's been built into you since birth, which is that the solid world is real and the mush of emotions and stuff going on in your head is unreal. You're going to die. You don't matter. It's just a solid world that's going to last. you got to just keep working against that all the time. And that's what I try to do. And I'm not very far along the road, but if you point it in the right direction, that's what counts. And I think I am. I hope I am. Proof of God to Lemmy Tompkins. I've got a copy to share. Email from the website, casey.co, and sign up for the Shine on Weekend while you're there. Our thought for the day comes from Voltaire, who said, God gave us the gift of life. It is up to us to give ourselves the gift of living well. Go. Live well. See you next week. 
You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show with Casey, an Ella's Leash production. The content of Shine On, the health and happiness show is intended for general information purposes only. You can listen to previously broadcast shows online at Casey.co. That's K-A-C-E-Y dot C-O. Join Casey for another edition of Shine On, the health and happiness show next Sunday morning, right here on 100.7 WHUD.